0: Hi, guys. Paul from the innovation community here. Today, I'm with Dr. JT Kosman, who is the former chief data scientist at Samsung and chief data officer at Time Inc. Now, JT has a wealth of experience in AI and data and now really focuses on cybersecurity, data security, and intelligence analysis. Great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Uh, just to start with, for those who have been living under a rock for the last few years, tell us a bit about yourself in a few words.
1: Oh, in a few words. Well, we'll try. Uh, I'm By training, I'm a data scientist, a mathematician, and a psychologist. Uh, I have, over the last few years, as you mentioned, worked with some very interesting organizations. I have been chief data scientist at Samsung, chief data officer at Time, Inc., and uh, worked with the US government uh, for a bit over a decade down in the beltway with the intelligence, defense, and security agencies. Currently, I'm the CEO and AI psychologist in residence for a company called Protected by AI. And essentially what we do is just what the name says. We protect people, property, places, and profits of company through AI-enabled solutions. And that's ranging everything from pure security and cybersecurity to improving their efficiencies and their capabilities.
0: So where did your data science career really begin?
1: Oh, boy. Now you see so you asked for short answers. Now that's a long one. <laughs> no, I'll give it the short answer is it actually began in the 1970s. Well, maybe even the late 60s. I learned to code on an IBM 1620 with Hollerith punch cards. Uh, And it was a relatively new machine at the time. I learned to code in Fortran out of Dr. Kaufman's Fortran coloring book in I think it was 1981 or 83 when it came out. And I've been at it ever since uh, in the various odd incarnations I've had in my life and the odd jobs I've done over the course of my life, data analysis and computing has always played a central role.
0: So uh, we've, pretty moved on from from that era. How has that changed for you from that time? I know
1: that we have moved on from that era. Uh, I think data is data. Uh, And when we talk about big data now, uh, we were pretty impressed back in the day. We thought we had pretty big data sets. Uh, Admittedly, they have gotten a lot better. uh, And things have changed, yes. Fundamentally, though, it's really, when I explain to my colleagues and friends, they ask me, So, you know, data scientist, mathematician, what does that actually mean? I told them, data science, when you strip it of all the nonsense, is really about finding meaning in unimaginable amounts of information. We now have better algorithms, better machines, better processes to be able to do that. But that's really what data science has always been. And by the way, mathematics is really stripped of everything, simply the science of patterns. Psychology, whether you're a clinician working with clients on a couch or an experimentalist, working with rats in the maze is about describing, understanding, predicting and influencing behaviors. And so what do I do? I look through unimaginable amounts of information to find patterns to describe, understand, predict and influence behaviors. That's it.
0: Hmm. Sounds a lot more simple than I'm sure it actually is. Can you delve a a bit deeper into your current role with protected
1: by AI? Yeah, we, um, uh, this is, The venture I'm most proud of in the course of my life, my co-founder and I, my co-founder is former uh, Secret Service, uh, United States Secret Service, one of those guys, the men in black who are protecting the president and that sort of a thing. And he ran out of the White House for about a decade uh, under the Bush and then the Obama administration. And his charge was nuclear biological and chemical threats, which he expanded his remit because a little bit of an underachiever, I guess, and got a master's cybersecurity. And so brought that in as well. He and I crossed paths when he was with secret service. Uh, one of those Jack Bauer moment, truly one of those stories I'll tell you sometime, it's been declassified and uh, ended up saving, you know, the free world for democracy, that kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> we uh, had sort of lost touch with one another. And he approached me uh, about two years ago and said, you know, um, I know you're just sitting on boards and you're probably bored why don't you come with me and let's help save the world a little bit. And that was, by the time we got up and running and got rolling was right around the beginning of COVID. And so what we really decided to emphasize on was helping companies not just survive, but thrive through this global pandemic. The, the impact it's having medically, we're actually working with medical institutions and different entities and even with the US government to help with supply chain and logistics and some of those things uh, and the conveyance and the capture of information. But we're also now working with uh, mid cap companies and the small companies. We feel like it's David battling Goliath and nobody is giving them slingshots or showing them how to use them. And so we're giving them these tools that f- formerly had been reserved only for the biggest and the most uh, profitable companies. We're now saying there's no reason that uh, a mid-tier manufacturer out of Montana shouldn't be able to avail themselves of the same kind of capabilities that uh, they have in, in the big auto manufacturers or Detroit or the big banks or any of those places.
0: Yeah, and, and there's a lot of passion shining through on, on this uh, already. What at the heart of it really interests you about working with data science and, and the practitioners involved in it?
1: Well, I, I've given you my... Uh, sort of second half of my resume. Uh, And uh, uh, full disclosure, Paul and I are friends, and Paul knows a little bit of the backstory. Uh, Prior to uh, grad school, prior to my pursuing this particular path, as sort of an intermezzo between learning to code back in the 60s, 70s, and where I am now, I had a very varied career as a paramedic, a police officer, uh, a deep sea rescue diver, And eventually, I was team leader of a scout sniper reconnaissance team with the U.S. Army Special Forces. I then went to work with the intelligence community. And my life has really been about uh, protecting people, and it's been about saving people. Uh, I started out not to, you know, make this into uh, a Horatio Alger tale, but I actually started out as a homeless kid living on the streets of New York. Uh, I lived on the streets from the time I was nine years old until I was, uh, well, on and off until I was 16. Uh, and that sort of preceded and established my my ethos, my my perspective on what life was about. And likewise, my co-founder, Brian, um, in this company, they started out, uh, his father was ban- had been bankrupted when he was very young and they ended up living in his aunt's basement. And so we came to realize that your economic well-being is second only in importance to your physical well-being, and so how can we help these companies? It's it's candidly breaking my heart, not just to see the millions—I well, mean, you know—the deaths are don't, don't even get started, uh, and the people who are sick, but who are economically devastated, right? And and not just the people who are on the unemployment line, uh, the millions of people who have become unemployed as a consequence of this crisis. But the nexus of that, the, the small and mid-cap companies that are the economy in the United States and globally who are being shuttered because, frankly, they don't have what they need. And it turns out there's only four things they need to attend to to be able to succeed. And so we, we're helping them with that.
0: Absolutely great stuff. And uh, just, just moving back onto the the really strong ethos that's carried really your career through, <clears throat> what do you see right now that businesses can most pragmatically apply in terms of AI and machine learning? Yeah.
1: Really, the, the question I think is almost the reverse. Rather than looking at applications of machine learning or artificial intelligence, what I encourage companies to do is look at the sh- problem they have, look at the challenge they have, look at the opportunities they have, and how can they resolve those problems as expeditiously, as efficiently, as economically, as they can. I uh, am famous for having gone into, uh, uh, or, or infamous within my community, for having gone into one of the biggest companies in the world, and I won't say which, and telling the solution to your problem is index cards. D- don't bother with the data, with the te- don't bother with any of that. Find the technology. One of my favorite pieces of technology is a pencil, right? Uh, I think we too often tend to go right to how can I take these cool whiz bang technologies and employ them and apply them. That said, when you look at the, the palette of technologies of capabilities that are now available within AI, anything from, do you want to, uh, I don't know, increase sales and reduce your customer acquisition costs? Well, might knowing the mind of your customer be to your advantage? Might a recommender system that's able to know what your, customer is likely to want to purchase next, more than likely than they know themselves, something that might be efficient for you? Maybe. Might you use something like an advanced form of robotic process automation that's able to expedite the delivery of a task and increase the efficiencies? Quick story on that. J.P. Morgan instituted a system they called COIN, Contract Investigation System, about two years ago. And COIN was intended to augment the work done by their uh, loan officers and lawyers in reviewing contracts, when they hit go on this system in under three minutes, with a far higher degree of accuracy, it was able to do work that took JP Morgan previously 360,000 hours. Those kind of efficiencies were available to people through AI and machine learning.
0: Absolutely. and. Just touching on what you're up to now, a lot of your experience and and the current role, of course, is in data protection. Can you touch on your views on things like uh, the California Consumer Protection Act, GDPR, and also future legislation that will affect individuals and
1: organizations? Yeah, Uh, you know, data security is one of the things, few things, that I think should keep executives up at night. Uh, you mentioned I was the chief data officer at Time Inc. I was also a member of the XCOM, the executive committee. And so very heady stuff, right? One of the 15 people who met every Monday morning to make decisions for this Fortune 15, I think, Fortune 50 company. Uh, and one of the things that was paramount and pressing and always at the fore was our data. We talk about sort of blithely how data is the new oil and data is the greatest asset an organization has. And yet, in most organizations, it's like leaving the door unlocked and the register open. Uh, In most organizations, they don't take it nearly uh, 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 seriously enough. That said, what we have now, as sort of a a pendulum swing on it, is people have to be almost as concerned, and and I think it was well-intentioned, but almost as concerned with the regulators as with the robbers, right? The penalties for GDPR, for CCPA, look at HIPAA, uh, the protection, uh, uh, Health Insurance Portability and Protection Act for healthcare workers, by the way, penalties that can range up to 10 years in prison. Uh, Senator, uh, I think it was Senator Rosen, Senator Blumstein, I forget, one of the senators uh, had has now proposed in the United States that we criminalize data privacy uh, toward the executives and the corporations and we're just not taking it seriously enough. The, the The good news is these are readily resolvable issues. These are things that, if organizations were to take it a bit more seriously, there are things we can employ, deploy, and be able to do. Those regulations and data privacy laws are just going to increase and increase. As I say, I think they're very well. I think they're very well intentioned. I think the we we have ignored the rights of the consumer for far too long. We have. Uh, almost tacitly treated it as if the data belongs to the companies, I I don't know that that's the case. So I don't know that your data doesn't belong to you. And if it does, then I have an obligation as a fiduciary to care for that data, even if it isn't yours, even if it's mine, and it's the assets of my corporation. Uh, When I was a C-level employee, uh, as I am now, if I absconded with funds or didn't treat them with due care or had them just robbed, uh, the board and the shareholders would hold me liable. And I think increasingly we're seeing that, uh, with data.
0: Yes. Yeah, some, some really fantastic insights there. What are some of the other major successes that you've achieved over your career in your opinion?
1: <laughs> uh, raising two wonderful children and, uh, now, uh, on to helping with three grandchildren, but in all fairness, I didn't raise the two children. My wife did, uh, <laughs> I, I learned to just do as I'm told, um. Really, those are the things that I'm most proud of. I've had, uh, uh, I think by most accounts, a rather auspicious career. I've helped get a president of the United States elected. I I ran the social media strategy for President Obama in 2012. I have helped uh, companies gain uh, literally billions of dollars in additional profits. Uh, We have uh, prevented a war. Quite literally, we uh, engaged in uh, activities that help get people, everything from medical care to voting rights. I'm doing a lot of work right now in the country of South Africa that I'm inordinately proud of, uh, where we are basically enabling the country of Africa to fight fraud, waste, abuse, corruption, and ensure the equitable distribution of services. Uh, We have a program in that where we're putting uh, people of South Africa, for more people who were the kids I was, who were living in the ghettos and living on the streets. We're doing a similar program in the United States we're about to spin up, uh, we call Reabled Veterans, where we're putting disabled vets back to work and giving them the skills they need, not just to succeed, but to become data scientists in their own right and AI uh, practitioners. And uh, we're doing that, we're hoping we have a program that we'll be launching soon for suicide prevention. Uh, both uh for the civilian population and for the veterans uh in the civilian in the uh uh civilian population we call it starfish. you know that old uh thing about throwing, throwing the starfish back in the ocean you can save the one uh and in the uh military uh, or for for veterans we call it AI jail which I just think is funny so <laughs> uh we're building these to be Capabilities that will help people who are at risk of taking their own lives, and so yeah, I'm 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 very proud of the work we do, but I I would say most proud of the non-work stuff I do. Mm.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you've contributed a lot to the to the world, not even just the AI space, which is great to hear. Tell us about a time that you affected change.
1: I live with an ICU nurse. Yeah, so it's you know, my wife (laughs) has been an ICU nurse for forty. years still does bedside care my daughter teaches special needs education and my son uh, until recently was an international journalist who uh in his last foray and trip he lived in an orphanage in nepal uh to try to uh disclose the the abuses and and, and uh, human trafficking and those sorts of things so you know it, it's hard for me to get <laughs> too banged up about what i do
0: <laughs> fair enough and You've obviously had a number of roles in in government and in business. Uh, when did you really, in your opinion, affect the most change in a major organization? And what were some of the big challenges that came with that?
1: You know, um, that's a great question. I, I I would say it it probably becomes a three way tie. Uh, I, I think it's Samsung uh, when uh, the. Guy who hired me, uh, Dr. Mark Ramsey, brilliant guy, came out of IBM with, I think he was there for 20-something years, had literally, I think, like 30 patents to his name, Uh, brilliant guy. But when he hired me, he said, you know, Samsung, one of the most technologically sophisticated companies on the planet, but from a data standpoint, somewhere in the mid to early 80s. Uh, And he wasn't kidding. They were. They were a soup sandwich, uh, as we say out west, or a goat rodeo. They were a complete mess. And so we helped them really get their ducks in line and enter sort of the big data revolution and the big data age, uh, in months, not years. And we did it very, uh, cost-effectively. Time Inc. is this iconic, uh, company that goes back a century and was on the brink of, of failure. And in this, you know, sort of obsolescent industry, and we really changed a lot of what they did there, but then, uh, As much as we help those companies earn literally uh, additional billions of dollars, uh, I'm not personally as proud of that as the work we did with uh, mid-cap companies. You know, the mom and pop, well, not quite mom and pop shops, but just a a leg above that, companies who have 300, 400, 500 employees, and we looked at, uh, I mentioned there are four things we tend to look at. strategy, human capital, insights, and technology, uh, which, by the way, if you'll uh, keep track of the acronym, right, you have to know your strategy, human capital, insight, technology. Uh, and if they know that and we help them with that, they're able to get their technology and their act together and succeed. And and we've helped, um, by now, I, I'd say it's probably close to 100 companies, uh, 75, 80 companies for certain uh, that i 've helped over the course of my career be able to do that and, and keep people employed and keep paying you know their taxes, which I appreciate uh, and and not just as I say, not just survive but thrive several of the companies we 've worked with have gone to that next place, and that 's just it 's a cool feeling to know you you 're even a little part of that
0: yeah, I can imagine, and I guess a big part of these you know the the, the leadership roles you 've had a lot of it will come down to you know, how you get that across. How would you describe your own leadership style?
1: Wow. Um, I I think uh, it it would be nurturing. I I, I think it would be the fairest description. At the risk of being paternalistic about it, uh, I care deeply about the people who work for me. I've had people work for me for, some of them have worked for me for nearly 20 years now. And no one uh, really, no one ever quits in the huff, right? I encourage people to move on to the next thing. I'm always looking out for their welfare to be able to, look, if someone's offering you three times the salary, for goodness sakes, uh, and I pay fair, but I don't pay above market wage very intentionally because... I think most people go to work, don't go to work just for the paycheck. I think there's sort of a, a YX graph, right? And on the one hand that you can get you can give people more pay and they'll work harder. But the other access that we tend to lose sight of is what I refer to as psychological currency, right? If you hate your company, it's gonna take a lot of money to get you to do something. But if you're a fanatical devotee, right? Not just like it, satisfied, engaged, but in love with it, but if you are fanatical about working there and with them, then that matters. And I, my goal is, is, is not to, you know, dupe people so I don't have to pay them very much. My uh, ethos, my feeling about this is you spend more time at work by definition than anything else you do in your life. You don't spend that much time with your children. You don't spend that much time with your spouse. You don't spend that much time, whatever your hobby is, unless you're Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> you spend more time at golf it the job fine but for most people you have to work and no one just works eight hours a day I mean even in this COVID era right uh even if you were at work for punching the clock eight hours you have to commute you have to get dressed hopefully you have to and you think about it right how many of us have not and I always challenge my students I used to teach in the MBA program I challenge my students and say, how many of you have not worked while naked? Well, of course you have. You're in the shower and you're like, oh, damn it. I got, right. And it's so all pervasive. And I feel a profound responsibility for that. I feel that the people who work for me are giving that much to me. And, you know, uh, a final bit on this. I I was speaking at a conference one time and I talked about uh, motivating and engaging your employees. And I was talking about getting them enthusiastic and getting them to join in, getting them to contribute. It starts with the commitment has to come from not them, but from you as the leader. And one of the people in the audience uh, interjects and he says, yeah, but you don't understand, I run a nonprofit and all my people are volunteers. I said, granted, I mean, it's a little bit of a different situation. And he comes in and he says that literally five times while I'm speaking. And so finally, I'm chewing on this for a little bit. I said, you know, the fact is they're all volunteers, aren't they? I mean, we don't have slavery or indentured servitude, at least in the United States and most countries around the world. Every morning, the people who work for me get up and have a decision to make. Do they want, to, would they rather come to work for me than all the other things they could do, including just not working for me? And so I, I take that very seriously.
0: And that's a, a good point to bring up. What are your thoughts on the impacts of COVID-19 right now?
1: Uh like nothing we've ever seen before. And please have a nothing we'll ever see again. Uh, as devastating as the impact has been medically, uh, and this is not a close second, but second to the medical impact, to the, to the devastating loss people are experiencing. And by the way, people just hear these numbers and it, it almost reminds me of Stalin, right? One death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And I, and I fear that we're getting to that point where we're becoming in, inured, where we're becoming it, numbed to, you know, oh, another 1,000 people in the US, another 2,000 in the US now a day. Oh, well, uh, and, and it's just numbers. It's not meaningful anymore. Uh, and, and I think we have to be very, very, very conscience, conscious of that and start thinking about that quite a bit because we have to also realize for every one of those 250,000 people, there are what, 10 people, 50 people who are grieving profoundly, right? One would hope that if you know, heaven forbid it's me, uh, I hope there's somebody who will give a damn and how much does it impact and devastate their life. But then look at the economic reverberations and repercussions of that. Look at how it's, it's impacting. But that said, it doesn't have to. I've started to give a series of talks and I've actually put together a virtual workshop talking about COVID as a catalyst for positive change. Can we use this as a way to start improving on our organizations, improving what we do, and not just surviving this, but coming out of the other end of this better than we went in? Uh, do you have time for a two-minute story? Absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> I keep mentioning my co-founder, Brian Gallagher, who, by the way, has become my best friend as well. So. A little man crush here, right? Uh, my wife's fine with it. <laughs> but Brian, uh, because it's COVID, right? He takes his family on a vacation and they go to the lake, not too far from his house, with the with the girls. He's got two young, beautiful young girls, and he's a fairly young guy. He's like twenty years younger than me, and so he goes and he's splashing around in the lake with the girls. And he comes up on shore. He's having such a good time, and <laughs> his wife looks at him and she says, you know, you're getting a little bit fluffy. She says <laughs> to him, fluffy, he says. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, former, you know, Secret Service, right? He, he was a, a competitive martial artist for a while and very athletic, very fit guy. And he's, you know, he's softened a little bit. And she says, you got a little fluffy. You, you put on a few pounds.' Thanks a lot, he says. Anyway, he goes, they go home and the uh, phone rings in his office. Hi, this is, I think, Kevin hi Kevin how can I help you he said no no how can I help you what your wife called me I'm your new personal trainer <laughs> I'm gonna be at the house Monday Wednesdays and Fridays forever from now on your wife has already paid me it's already taken care of Monday, Wednesday Fridays I'll be there at 6 in the morning uh, okay Kevin said uh, uh, Brian says I'll see you on Monday Kevin he calls me up you know kind of miffed about it and almost chagrined. He's laughing and he's telling me, and I'm hysterical. I think this is the funniest thing I've ever heard. And my wife is in the room. So I start, what are you laughing about? And I told her what's happening. I hang up the phone and she said, you know, (laughs) and so she challenges me. Great. I get back on the phone with Brian and this is on August 11th, this past August 11th. And I know the date because that's when we started what we call the founder's fat off and the founders fat off is we're competing with one another and there's a hundred bucks on the line so we made a bet i know and the way we'll compete is in a year uh, on august 11 2021 we have to appear before our wives in board shorts and shirtless and they'll judge who's gotten in better shape and if there's a tie and both of our wives are mean so there will be a tie we have to put those pictures on social media so there's real pressure there so we are taking this damn seriously uh i already lost like 27 pounds and I put all kinds of muscle and we're like taunting each other, right? I'm always calling when he's in the car with the girls, girls take daddy for ice cream and right? bust each other's chops. Why do I tell you this story? That's the story of most companies in the world, most companies in the United States in particular, but around the world. What happened, they achieved a measure of success. They became a little complacent. They got a little fluffy. They got a little out of shape. They didn't fight as much, they didn't work as hard. It's not their fault. It's the natural nature, it's the nature of things, right? We get older as an individual or as a company, we spend a little bit more time on the couch than on the treadmill. We're not exactly killing ourselves to get that date with that pretty spouse, right? That pretty person of the opposite sex to what we want to attract or the same sex that we want to attract. And we just kinda, how many of you who are listening today have that man or woman working in your company and honestly, you have no idea what they do. It, we all have them, right? And in fact, in most companies, it's anywhere from 10 to 20% of the people. Who, who knows what they're doing? Are we doing things that really are advancing the agenda of our organization? When I talk about the strategy, the human capital, the insights and the technology, to be able to get you to that next level, most organizations, in fact, all organizations could benefit with starting with an an assessment and understanding, where are we on these things? Do we have something that's concordant with, just like Brian and I had to create a strategy, we had to get, as to human capital, we each hired a coach. I have a coach that I'm working with now as well, uh, which by the way, on that, my coach is virtual. He costs me 250 bucks for six months. Now, most of us would think nothing about paying that much for a set of weights but you know an equipment a thing 250 bucks for six months that's about 73 cents a day uh great and he's going to help get my butt in gear as to insights he insists I weigh myself literally every day which it's a little depressing. Uh, but take, you know, measure your biceps and your neck and how much weight are you lifting. He wants those metrics, those numbers to gain those insights and the mirror test, right? He forces me to send pictures of myself, which is mortifying. And the technology, of course, is right, which what is it dumbbells or barbells or treadmills or whatever the heck it is, or is it just push-ups or whatever it is and have those things in the line? And guess what? Just a few months in. I'm 27 pounds lighter. I feel a lot better about myself. I physically feel better than I've felt in years and years and years. How many companies are not taking advantage of that same opportunity? How many companies are sitting there bemoaning that, oh my goodness, the COVID beast and all these things that are happening to me and they're powerless. You're not, you're not. My message to you is you don't have to hire me. Although let me offer also, There is no meter on my desk. There's no fee. I'm the only doctor who still makes house calls and for free. If you want to call me, if there's something I can help you with, if you just need a little guidance, a little shove and a push, if you need to understand how those things like strategy, human capital, insights and technology can be brought to bear to help you and your organization, give me a ring.
0: Fantastic story with a a great ending as well. So, Obviously working from home now, what does your morning routine look like?
1: I always work from home. Uh, I actually, uh, my wife taunts me because, you know, COVID has barely impacted us. Uh, I'm I almost uh, guilty to admit it. We have, uh, I, I'm talking to you now from our New Jersey home. We have a couple of homes, but this has become the main home. Uh, if for no other reason, my grandchildren are probably six miles away. Uh, And my son and his soon-to-be bride, uh, likewise, live right nearby. But my my day begins uh, with the gym. My day begins, uh, we have a a home gym. uh, Well, Brian got, um, uh, Brian's wife got him a trainer, mine built a gym gym, you know, locker rooms and showers and, you know, the whole, every piece of equipment known to man, I think, And so uh, I wake up every day uh, at about five. Uh, By 5.15, I'm in the gym. Uh, I do a a sauna first. I sit in the sauna for about a half an hour because I'm old and creaky and to loosen up my bones a little bit. And then I do my workout and then I'm on to work. Uh, I'm up here to the office and uh, I will stay here. Well, you know, shower, (laughs) get dressed. Uh, And then I'll come up to the office and uh, Brian and I have our first meeting at 9 a.m., our stand-up meeting for the day. We align our priorities, and we get to work. And uh, that's what my day looks like until quitting time, which is pretty much never. Uh, I have now started to do, I I do a number of virtual events. Uh, I'm speaking at conferences, but we also put together a a virtual event that uh, I, I know, Paul, you and I have talked about where essentially what we're telling organizations is, look, you know, for uh, the investment, quote unquote, of four hours of your time, put everyone together and let's talk to the leadership first uh, in a separate conversation, but then let's spend four hours with the rank and file and let's do that interactively rather than being a presentation, more of a conversation, truly a virtual event where we can engage people and let's enlist their aid in, what the strategy should be, what the human capital is that we can leverage, what insights do we need, and what technology do we employ, deploy, or somehow utilize to be able to achieve those ends? What are the Goliath and forces allied against us? And what kind of slingshots do we need and how do we use them uh, most effectively? You know, I have a couple of uh, aphorisms that I run every organization I've ever led by. One of my favorite is, no one is as smart as everyone. And that's my thinking with most organizations, we find they don't tap into the wisdom of the crowd. They don't tap into those collective minds that are, have been there. Um, you have time for one quick, one minute story on for Sure. Okay. Did a project years ago with uh, Hershey. You, everyone knows Hershey. I was gonna say, do you know Hershey? Everyone knows Hershey, right? Hershey, the chocolate company. And Hershey is located in, interestingly enough, if you don't know, Hershey, Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, Hershey is, uh, I'll tell you, culturally, probably the greatest company I've ever worked with in my career. Uh, They are extraordinary. Hershey, Milton Hershey, when he founded the company, uh, he took a profound interest in orphans. And so he founded an orphanage. The orphanage is still there. And in fact, when you go to Hershey, Pennsylvania, it's on the top of the hill like this big castle. uh, And that is the orphanage. And everyone knew that Milton Hershey would take care of the orphans when he died. What he, they didn't know, and what most people don't know is he didn't just take care of them. They actually own Hershey's. He left the chocolate factory to the children. He left the chocolate factory to the orphanage. The orphanage still has an active role in the company. And as a consequence, that ethos pervades the entire company. Wonderful people, wonderful company. And the reason I say, tell you that is, This is a company that not only respect their employees, they cherish them, right? And in fact, it is not unusual to have someone not only work there for 30, 40, 45, 50 years, literally, I don't think they allow it anymore, but third generation. Uh, And in fact, when I was there, and I was speaking with all of, we, we put together all the people from one of the factories, And there were people there, and I tell them, you know, let's do a little exercise. How many of you have been here at least a year? Everybody laughs, right? Every hand goes up. How many of you have been here 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Hands are still going up. How many of you were second generation, third generation? Oh, my goodness. Let me ask you one more question, or two more questions. How many of you have had a great idea in the last year? Something that could really change this company for the better. Something that can improve productivity, profitability, quality, customer service, something. And you've had a great idea about that. Literally every hand in the audience goes up. How many of you have shared that idea with senior leadership? Not one hand. The C, I forget if it was the COO or the CFO, is on stage with me, literally starts to cry, literally starts tearing up. And it broke his heart. Why? They created this extraordinary culture, and yet there still wasn't a mechanism, a means for people being able to share. The the denouement, the epilogue to this story, a week after I leave, one of these guys uh, who was in the audience approaches his supervisor and says, look, I have an idea and I haven't shared it, but here's this thing we can do to this machine. And if we were running it this way, and if we ran it backwards also, whatever the heck, is that, I don't know, machines, uh, we could save a ton of money, right? No, the supervisor says, I don't think so. I said, hey, hey, you remember that crazy doctor guy who was up on stage and saying, you know, you got to at least hear me out. I'll come in on the weekend to retool the machine. Uh, I'm so confident this will work. Well, I don't know. If it doesn't work, I'll stay the next weekend to put it back out. All right, do it. It ends up saving them something around $16 million a year, which by the way, Hershey wrote him a really nice check, right? But why the heck not? They're saving $16 million a year, so they cut him a nice check. But the point is, this guy has been working on this machine for, I forget how long it was, like 20 something years, literally, which can you imagine? He's working on this machine and this process for 20 something years. His dad worked on this process. Who the heck could possibly know better how to improve this than the person who is there? And in most organizations, do we really lend free voice to that? Do we have a mechanism in place for being able to incorporate the insights, the wisdom of that crowd, and being able to put it to work? I, I think that's, you know, a little, little takeaway tip, uh, boys and girls, and men and women, and everyone who's listening today. Uh, no one is as smart as everyone. Uh, your employees aren't your employees. They're your partners in in succeeding you have to rely on them to be able to get those insights
0: that's a fantastic story i'm I'm glad that you you shared that we've 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 talked spoken a lot about the successes of your career what do you think was the biggest mistake you've made during that time
1: oh boy um (laughs) uh today or (laughs) uh you know um Most of my mistakes have been about uh, trusting. Uh, I, I, I'm a cockeyed optimist. My wife makes fun of me all the time for it. Uh, my wife is named an Angie, by the way. I hate the phrase, my wife. It sounds like I somehow possess her like I have a toaster. Uh, but Angie, once in a while, will will chide me and say, oh, you know, you always think everyone is going to be. And the disappointments I've had have been around that, where I have uh, trusted people and I have... Given them more than I probably should have. But you know what, I'm okay with that. Uh, on reflection, I have lost um, uh, literally millions of dollars uh, as a consequence of of trusting the wrong people. Uh, and I'm not naive, I'm not stupid. I've, I've you know been around the block a time or two. Uh, and I've gone in full eyes open, but I would rather that than be a cynic, be a doubter, be someone who doesn't believe uh, uh, what I'm currently engaged in um, uh, in civil litigation with a firm right now. Uh, I would say it's probably my biggest mistake was I knew in my gut, and so did Brian. And we said we should not go into business with these people. Uh, but we had there was another partner involved, and they convinced us, oh, stay in, stay in, and said, you know what, it just doesn't feel good, and it doesn't feel right. And I didn't trust my gut uh, and. I tried so hard to see the better angels that I deluded myself to some extent, and um, it's one of the few regrets I have of a mistake I've made. Most mistakes I've made, it's you know, it was a learning lesson. Um, I had mentioned you know, no one is as smart as everyone. One of my favorite professional characteristics I have in myself, maybe my only characteristic in myself that I like professionally, is I actually enjoy being wrong. Uh, I love it. Uh, I run a group right now with uh, uh, ATARC, the Advanced Technology and Applied Research Council, and uh, we have these committees that they put me on for, you know, the uh, uh, policy implications of artificial intelligence and those sort of things, and so I decided I was going to start my own group, and I did, and the group I titled, uh, and by the way, we meet every other Friday, anyone is welcome to attend, the conversation I call Skynet, Star Trek, Socrates, and Scotch. And the idea is to get together and talk about substantial issues, uh, talk about the the, uh, economic implications of artificial intelligence, talk about the uh, algorithmic biases, talk about data privacy, talk about some of these things collegially among colleagues. And the reason I bring it up is my goal is to be shown that I'm wrong about things and be able to change my mind. And we actually have a prize. We award at the end of every year the winner gets a really good bottle will get a really good bottle of scotch for being able to be wrong the most if they can acknowledge that their mind has been changed that they 've evolved their thinking the most, yes, then you 're the winner and so that said, you know uh, my regrets are never about being wrong it's uh, in this one particular circumstance with this one particular company uh, i i invited in what what turned out to be charlatans and frauds and con men and thieves. And, uh, then, you know, gee, I was shocked, shocked. I say that I invited a chicken, uh, a, a fox into the hen house.
0: Fantastic stuff. What's the best piece of advice you ever received?
1: This is going to sound really weird, but, uh, I was about 17 years old and, uh, I was, uh, Working uh, I literally digging ditches for a living, and uh my girlfriend broke up with me and I was like devastated, you know I was seventeen, you know I was so old and and, and I was sure this was forever and and she was this really pretty girl and 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 I thought very sweet, very nice, and she just you know you 're done, and so on my break i 'm sitting there and i 'm just look like a hurt puppy dog, I guess I'm not I'm crying, but i 'm like you know. Uh, and my boss came over to me, and he says, uh, "You know, I heard that uh, that Zelda was her name. What a cool name, right? I heard Zelda dumped you." I said, "Yeah," kind of broke my heart, man. And he said, "Don't worry, things will get worse." And I thought, first, first, I thought, "What a jerk!" And then I thought, you know what? Context. Yeah, yeah. That 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 really stuck with me, is all things in context, all things in, in you know, matter in a context. That, that same boss, by the way, gave me my other best piece of advice ever. Um, uh, he, uh, he <laughs> Weirdly, uh, he, was, uh, he was the foreman on this job we were doing, this construction job where I was digging ditches, but I knew him from, uh, he was also a paramedic. Uh, during his day job, right? And I eventually became an EMT and then I became a paramedic. And I was very young at the time. I'm like 18, 19 years old. And I used to come in for work late all the time, chronically, always. I was always late for a shift. And he sat me down and he told me, you know, when you're late, what you're actually saying to someone is you're more important than them we in this world cannot manage our time time is that 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 thing of time management that's an illusion no one can manage time no one can stop time what you can manage are your priorities and what's more or less important to you and so what you're saying when you come in late is that you don't prioritize that person that you're somehow more important than they are and you're not honoring your commitment your obligation you're disrespecting them do you know that was 17 years old i'm old now. That was, you know, 40 plus years ago. I'd never been late ever, ever since. Not once, not ever. If In fact, my wife is the same way. Angie is the same way. If you invite us to your house at 6 p.m. at 5.50, we are in the driveway. My daughter, when she was 12 years old, came up with one of our family mottos, which is early is on time, on time is late, and late is unacceptable. Uh, if I'm meeting with the, uh, literally, Uh, I had a meeting with the uh, custodial staff when I was at Time Inc. I had a meet with a a couple of the the people who kept the building clean. We had just moved to Brookfield place a new building. And I had a meeting with them uh, at 9 AM one day when they came to the room, I was sitting there with my coffee and I had brought uh, coffee and donuts for them. Uh, And I'd been sitting there for 15 minutes. Uh, They were, you know, mind blown, because it's supposed to be some stupid power thing where I'm supposed to come late, I guess. Uh, But I do the same thing no matter who I'm meeting with. If I have an in-person meeting, I am always in the parking lot a half an hour early. If I am uh, for a flight, I'm always bizarrely early. My philosophy is you have to be somewhere. You might as well be somewhere where you can pay respect in this day and age. Bring your laptop, for God's sakes. Bring your phone. Bring your tablet. Bring a book. Do something. You can be productive wherever you are. But have that respect of realizing you're no more important than anyone else. And the final thing I'll say on that, um, I've worked for some very powerful people. Uh, I've worked for directors of agencies, uh, government agencies, for generals, uh, for the President of the United States. The best of them are exactly the same way. Um, Barack Obama never, ever, ever, not once kept me waiting. General Norman Schwarzkopf, when I was a lonely sar- lowly sergeant, he was there. Uh, uh, these agencies, these people you hear about in the news, uh, of course, there's this arrogant you know, subset of them, but the best of them, uh, they respect everyone else at least as much as they respect themselves.
0: What's your top working from home tip? Because you've been doing it for some time now.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, don't annoy you. <laughs> uh, that's my number one tip my number two tip is structure uh you have to treat it like you're going to the office i there are uh, look let's face it most of us uh, i right now don't have any pants on and i'm wearing bunnies no it's not true i <laughs> Most of us do though, right? You see all these Zoom instances and they're even, now they're laughing about it, making it funny. Oh, the camera went down and he's just wearing shorts or boxers or whatever, ah. Don't do that, don't do that. Put structure in your day. Treat it like you're going to the office. This is, I mentioned I'm in the office right now. This is my office. It doesn't matter that it happens to be contiguous with the rest of my living space. I go to my office, I bring my cup of coffee, I come up here, I shut the door and I do work. And I know not everyone has that luxury of having that, but you know, I was poor for most of our, my life. I was a paramedic, a police officer, Special Forces Soldier, I didn't make money. Uh, I didn't mi- get you know, well to do until I was in my forties. Uh, but what I would do even then, when I wrote my dissertations, uh, I would carve out a little space on the corner of the dining room table, that's my office, and that's it. And I would wake up in the morning, uh, I would get showered, dressed, do, if I'm exercising, whatever it is I'm doing, that's it, and I go to work. Uh, I'm I'm not uh, by nature, not necessarily a regimented person, and I, I'm sort of equivocating there, because I say that on the one hand, but I have forced myself to date, uh, and I absolutely impose that discipline on myself. And I think self-discipline becomes key. Say to yourself and treat those meetings as the sacrosanct, those commitments, right? I, right now, my my um, uh, son and my new daughter-in-law just moved in with us for a little bit as they're getting their new house. And they have this huge Rottweiler named Tank who we've come to adore. Tank and I have a thing now. At three o'clock every day, we go for a walk. I don't care who else is here or who else can do it. I don't care if my son and my daughter are here three o'clock i have a commitment and tank by the way knows uh you know at at about 250 he's like are you you gonna make it today boss and and every once in a while i have to schedule a call so i have to take him a little before a little after and like throws both of us off for the day but i made that commitment my goodness and and that's what i'm going to do the same thing like with my morning workout there are times where occasionally we have conversations with, you know, South Africa or India or or UK or whoever we're speaking to, we have to move the time a little bit. Um, But that's okay. I I have to then reschedule that appointment and I have to impose that structure into my day. And I think that becomes key is, is that compartmentalization. And by the way, the other side of that is when you leave the office, leave the office, you're done, right? You can't create these semi-permeable nebulous boundaries where work never ends and where home life never begins and, and vice versa. You, there has to be these dis- discretization of these aspects of your life.
0: Great advice that, uh, what are you curious about in the AI space right now?
1: Oh, uh, curiosity is, is, well, it's not my middle name because I changed my name. I'm <laughs> my sixth name right now, but, I'm curious about everything um, I, really what I spend part of my time thinking now is what's next. Um, I, I, I love the work that's been done over the last 10 years, five years. Uh, AI has, by the way, uh, remember, I've been there since maybe not the beginning, but damn close, closer than most people who are in this year. Uh, I've been at this uh, and, and, devastatingly uh, invested in and interested in AI since the 70s, certainly in the 80s. I've read everything that's ever been written uh, pretty much at that time. I still pretty much keep up. I read about 250 300 books a year, uh, and uh, a, not all of them, but a lot of them are around this field and, and sort of the, the collateral around it. And I bring that up because there has been more advance made in the last five years than in the preceding 50. And so this is the most exciting time uh, you can imagine in this field. And AI will impact every other area. And so this is like, you know, understanding the crucible of where things are going. And that said, what I'm most interested in now is, is what's next, is the eventual inevitable evolution of AI and I, where that's going to happen. It's not that I think this is where this is going to happen. Uh, the solutions that my team and I develop, we refer to as being symbiotech, right? Symbiotics, uh, symbiotech, right? Uh, and, and I don't do that just flippantly. It is the bridging that carbon-silicon divide. It's working not just in AI, but, you know, the, the, the press, pundits, politicians, the professional organizations have labeled me one of the world's leading thinkers in applied artificial intelligence. And I keep telling them, I don't even know that I do AI. I do IA. IA is more intelligence augmentation. How do we work synchronously with these systems to be able to evolve ourselves uh, and to be able to evolve what we're capable of? There are things about AI, machine learning, deep learning, uh, neural networks, natural language processing, cognitive computing, that are would, would blow your mind of, of what's possible now already. But, that doesn't hold a candle to the gray, squishy wetware that we keep between our ears, right? And so how do we integrate those things? You know, final thing on this, I wrote an article a little while back um, uh, that I published on LinkedIn of all places, but um, I wrote it almost as an homage to, to Angie, to my wife. And Angie at the time had gone down to DC for one of the marches and it was, a bunch of nurses have got together that were marching on Washington. Why? Not for better pay and benefits. No, no, because they wanted more services for their patients. They wanted a higher nurse to patient ratio. They wanted uh, uh, better ways to care for the, the people they care for. And my wife already was working. And by the way, ICU nurse for 40 years, 40 years, literally. Uh, she works 12 hour shifts that typically a 14 hour shift on her feet, barely gets a break. She takes her days off to go down and march on Washington. And so what was the theme of this article? The article I titled, Robots Will Never Take This Job. And I made the point that 80, maybe 90% of what my wife does can be done by machines, but will never do those things that make her quintessentially human and a great nurse. Things like empathy, compassion, wisdom, sagacity, perspective, those things that make us human, right? Those things that bring true value in most organizations, in most positions. The goal isn't to start thinking about man versus machine or person versus machine, more rightly, but the integration of those. How can people leverage machines and leverage that technology to better achieve their objectives to make a better world?
0: And you mentioned earlier, you you read, a lot of books who's your favorite author or currently then let's say
1: <laughs> my son actually uh the, the journalist uh, real, honestly truly he's, he's a brilliant writer it like pisses me off because i'm a pretty good writer but i read his stuff and i'm like oh come on right he was in nepal by the way and he uh i told him you've written anything recently he said no but i gotta bang out a couple of pieces let me get back to you this evening all right so he gets back and me and his mother and, and his sister, we're, we happen to be sitting there and, oh, I, I wrote three pieces, <laughs> to be like four hours later, check them out. Tell me what you think. The first one we're reading and we're laughing so hard. We can hardly breathe. It's just funny. And the next one, my wife and daughter burst into tears and I'm like, holding it back. Uh, and it's like, oh my gosh, to have talent like that. That said, um, I grew up with, um, uh, is he there? There he is. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, and Martin Gardner, the uh, mathematics uh, genius and puzzle writer for the sci- for Scientific American. Uh, and uh, I read voraciously from everyone and anyone. My, I like, I love good writing. Uh, I'm a bit of a rhetorical snob, and I, I I know when something is well written. But more important, I like great ideas, and I like things that challenge me and are provocative. Uh, So, yeah, if if you have any recommendation for any book about anything, uh, I I try to read widely across the spectrum. And, yeah, uh, and and by the way, I've already read everything that Gardner and and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle have read. written, so, you know, (laughs) something new is always appreciated.
0: And final question, what advice would you give for aspiring leaders in data science?
1: Oh, um, I would say I end up using my degrees in psychology more than in technology in leadership. There is uh, uh, Lawrence J. Peter back in the 1970s uh, uh, proposed a fairly provocative proposition. And he wrote a book that no one would publish. Uh, He went to famously like, I I don't know, something like 100 different publishers, I don't know the exact number, but a lot of publishers. And the title of the book and his proposition was the Peter Principle. And the Peter Principle uh, succinctly said is, given the opportunity, all people will eventually rise to their own level of incompetence. It sounds like he's just kidding, but he's not. Think about it. If you are a data scientist or an aspiring data scientist, you are a coder, or uh, you're just a mathy, and you're kind of a geek, and you want to become a data scientist. Good for you. You work hard, you hone those skills, you refine those capabilities, you become a true data scientist, right? Whatever that means. You do that long enough and hard enough, you become a senior data scientist. Great. Why? Because you were competent, because you showed your capability, and so we promote you what happens to you next? If you're really good as a senior data scientist, eventually we give you people to lead, and we tell you now you're a team leader. Well, what the heck does being a data scientist have to do with leading people? Nothing. If by some miracle you succeed in that, what do we do? Well, you know, we can't just leave you there, and so we promote you, and we keep promoting you, and we keep promoting you, and we keep promoting you, till eventually you get to your level of incompetence, and then what do we do? Well, most places we don't demote you. So we just leave you there or we fire you. And what most people don't do in data science in particular, I think, and in and, and technological pursuits in general, is they don't hone and refine those other aspects of what will be required of them, right? Uh, uh, I mention I read voraciously, but I also read very broadly. And, and I recommend we all do the same. If you're a young data scientist, are you reading the Wall Street Journal on a daily basis or the Financial Times or Bloomberg? Do you understand the business of business? Are you availing yourself of leadership literature? And, and I'll admit there isn't very much that's very good, but there are works out there. There are things you can study. There are things you can do and refine your capabilities. Do you... Uh, I adhere to the Socratic maxim, uh, the Delphic maxim. The Oracle at Delphi had on a lintel as he entered know thyself. Do you? Do you really? Uh, do you know what your strengths are? Do you know what your challenges are? And have you a plan to be able to evolve those things? You know, it's a sad fact of life that most of us will spend more time planning our next vacation than we do our own career and our professional life. I think as a consequence, most people live a life by default. And not by design, we need to give real thought into if this is where I want to be at the end of this journey or or e- even at this transit point in the journey, what does it take to get there? You would never climb Mount Everest without enlisting the aid of a Sherpa without getting a strategy in place without evolving the human capital in yourself and getting to the gym or 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 building up your lung capacity or your endurance for altitude or whatever it takes without having the insights on map and a compass and knowing where you are and where you're going and how you want to get there and the technology you need to succeed, whether that's a pack or a pick or uh, crab palms or whatever it is you need or a rope, right? Uh, ropes are important. I've climbed. Uh, I'll tell you, ropes are important. Uh, and you want that technology and exactly the technology you need You need to have a degree of facility with it. You know, in data science in particular, someone comes up with a new way of doing generative artificial neural networks, GANs, or, you know, is it stochastic gradient descent models versus particle swarm optimization? Oh, let's argue for hours on that. But how do you lead and succeed in an organization and engender some sense of commitment? And how do you lead really smart people who, commanded control doesn't work you need more collaboration and commitment and how do you get that and how do you do those things we tend not to give that nearly enough thought or consideration
0: Just some great advice. <laughs> yeah fantastic advice that was dr jt costman former chief data scientist at samsung and chief data officer at time inc thanks for joining us
1: thank you